girl named Betty who wears patent leather shoes. She just moved from Missouri and she's feeling kind of bruised. She says, hey, hey, hey. Hello and welcome to Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase. I'm Betty. I'm a flight attendant for a major airline and I bring you stories from the airplane, from the flight attendants and the pilots, and from traveling around the world. This episode is called strange bedfellows. It's all about things that just don't go together. So last week, I did an interview with the BBC. Right now, I'm going to play you um, the beginning of that segment that I'll be on. I'll play the rest of it later, but it'll sort of explain what this whole episode's about. Hello, and welcome to Outlook from the BBC World Service. I'm Lucy Ash. On today's program, a year on, the woman who was raped 19 times and forced to kill her own child in the Democratic Republic of Congo tells us she doesn't want revenge. Also, as the cost of rice rockets around the world, we hear from a family in Calcutta who is struggling to make ends meet. And now that new rules allow mobile phones to be used on planes, Betty, the flight attendant, tells us why she thinks that's a terrible idea. But first, conflict... So- Do you see what I'm talking about with strange bedfellows? I'm on the BBC. It's the BBC World Outlook. It's the news. So it's all, there's rape and murder. And then we have Betty. (laughs) It just doesn't seem to go together. It seems a little absurd. (laughs) But we will have the uh, entire interview, my interview with the BBC at the end of the episode. But then in the meantime, we're going to listen to stories about all types of strange bedfellows, things that don't go together, like sleeping and cooking, Hillary and Hutch, volunteer snorkeling. Have you ever heard of those two words together? Barf to go. And some things that you really don't want to put together, like the big giant fat person and the empty airplane seat next to you. (laughs) So let's get going with the strange bedfellows. She says, hey, 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 to the vendor at parking 81st. A good day, good day. Okay, so you have a story? I sure do. It's a New York story. There I was, a new pilot, staying over at a hotel in New York City, walking back to my hotel one night, and as I get to the front door of the hotel, I look over my shoulder, I notice two police cars in a black limo pull up in front of the same hotel I'm at. So, of course, I walk inside the hotel, go toward the elevator bank, and I'm looking over my shoulder... Sure enough, the police come in. They got some guy they're escorting with them. As is typical in New York, I wait for the elevator. We all pile on one elevator, turn around and face the door. Full load of people. And as we look out the elevator door, just before the elevator door closes, we see the police go by. And who's with them? But Charlton Heston. So the doors close. And as typical in New York, nobody talks to anybody on the elevator. Nobody even looks at anybody. But from the back of the elevator, one guy goes... Was it just me, or did I just see Moses walk by? And the whole elevator starts cracking up. That's my New York story. She sees the city glowing in the morning, and she feels that she might burn. So talk about strange bedfellows, things that just don't go together. I was in Merzouga, which is a tiny, tiny little town in the Sahara Desert in Morocco. We were on a camel trek in the desert. And, you know, we're walking for days. We're out there for like three days. So you talk about everything with your camel driver. And he was telling us that, you know, they had a few celebrities 
all the way out there in Merzuga, in the middle of the Sahara Desert in Morocco. And I was like, really? Who are the celebrities? He said, uh, Hillary and Hutch. <laughs> I was like, excuse me? He's like, Hillary Clinton and Hutch. <laughs> At first, I wasn't sure who he meant by Hutch. You know, I know who Hillary Clinton is. And he meant David Soul from the original Starsky and Hutch. So those were the two big celebrities who had made it out to the Sahara Desert. That was uh, Hillary and Hutch. I was flying the 7-2 and I was the engineer. And uh, we had a full, I mean, almost absolutely full airplane. And uh, so I'm sitting there watching them load. And I saw this generously figured woman go by yeah, in a moo-moo. And uh, I mean, and I watched her go by. And I thought, even as I saw her, I mean, she was scraping the aisles walking down. I don't care which way she turned. I mean, she was, she looked like the Queen Mary down the aisles, you know. And I remember watching her thinking... This isn't going to happen. And uh, sure enough, about two minutes later, here comes this you know, young preppy 20s guy coming up here. I could see. I go, yeah, he's the one in the seat next to her. And you could hear him. like, I'm like, okay. And so I'm thinking they're going to move him up because we had one seat in first class. And it was 1A, which you know, I can't see because it's behind the coat closet. But I can see 1B. And in 1B, there's this... Uh, there's this distinguished looking gentleman i mean you know he's he, wall street journal i mean you know the, the dress slacks and nice shoes and uh he's sitting there reading the wall street and he's not paying attention now for some reason they decided to move the moo moo lady so here she comes <laughs> and as she draws a beam of his seat i mean her shadow must have weighed five pounds because when it hit him he looked up <laughs> now the problem was the poor fellow was already belted in so he couldn't I saw that. I'm sitting there watching this whole thing unfold, and you could see his eyes. You could they just looking at her, looking at at the divider in front of him, and it, it was real quick. He figured out there wasn't enough space, <laughs> so he reaches down and starts to unbuckle his belt. It's too late. <laughs> now she's still facing me, so <laughs> she when she moved in, <laughs> I lost sight of this poor fella. <laughs> but when. When she went on past and he reemerged from behind her, the look on his face, he just got hit by two hams. <laughs> and, <laughs> I don't know how he's going to explain those black eyes to his wife. <laughs> and the thing was, he was looking right at me when he, and I had to turn real quick. So I leaned up, I fell over the front console, I was laughing so hard. And the captain looked down at me and goes, what the hell's wrong with you? I said, you're not going to believe what just... So talk about strange bedfellows. Here are two words that you never hear used together in a sentence. <laughs> you know, like, oh, yes, my friend and I were doing some volunteer snorkeling. 
Have you ever seen that ever together? Volunteer snorkeling? Well, my friend and I actually did some volunteer snorkeling in Thailand. After the tsunami, you know, you're watching on the news, just just horrific, all the devastation and you want to do something. And my friend and I were planning on going on a trip somewhere. So we decided we would go to Thailand to see if there was anything we could do to help. This was about three months after the tsunami. So we get there and we figured, you know, with all the devastation. We'd find something to do. And sure enough, we were on a boat going to an island and we ran into this girl who said, oh yes, I've just spent the last week, two weeks volunteer snorkeling on Pee Pee. <laughs> I know that's a very strange name for a place, but the island is actually called Pee Pee. You would think reading it is Pie Pie, but they pronounce it Pee Pee. And it's the island that Leonardo DiCaprio made famous in the movie The Beach. And that movie was about they find this beautiful island and a bunch of young people decide to form their own community on this island. And then in the movie, everything goes bad. But on this island, it was sort of like life imitating art, imitating life, because um, we then hightailed it to Pee Pee. We thought we couldn't even go to Pee Pee because we had heard that it was just demolished in the in the tsunami. Because what had happened is there's two bays on Pee Pee and one wave came from one direction, like all the people ran the other direction and a wave came from the other side and basically took the entire contents of the only town on the island and deposited it into the bay and because it was a bay it didn't go out to sea so then it's just rotting and you know doing all kind of harm to the ocean so young people from all over the world descended on pp and decided to try to help clean it up so it was sort of like the movie and that these young people formed this community they were organized every single day something was getting done either in the ocean or on the island to clean up the island of PP. I mean, it was really heartwarming to see young people getting, mainly young people getting together and really working as a team to really accomplish something. So this was a fantastic opportunity for us because, you know, you want to do something good and it's on, you know, a beautiful island. <laughs> and we did some volunteer snorkeling because this is what would happen. The, we'd take a boat out and divers would dive down and rope up debris because every single thing from the town was sitting on the ocean floor. So the, the divers would rope up whatever it was and then blow up a bag like a balloon, send it to the surface, and then the snorkelers, that would be us, <laughs> we'd swim out, we'd, we'd pull up the rope to whatever the debris was and then swim it over to a platform which it would put the trash and then it, later a boat would come and remove the trash. So, I mean, it was very physically demanding, but very satisfying to actually be doing something and really helping. The other thing you could do certain days, like after the tide went out, so the water levels were lower, you could just free dive down with your snorkel and pick up the trash that was on the ocean floor. I mean, there was everything. So you'd have this mesh bag and you would dive down and pick up silverware and then you'd dive down and you'd pick up a teddy bear and then you'd dive down and pick up a clock. Um, but unfortunately, you know, everything has been churned up. So everything's broken and there's shards of glass and pieces of tin roof. And, you know, you're just picking it up and putting it in this mesh bag. And then you'd have to swim it over to this platform. And unfortunately, my friend, as she was swimming with this bag of debris, uh, a shard of glass slashed her ankle open. So I came back to the boat and here she is sitting up there. Everybody's looking at her. And was, she was like, I've hurt myself. And I was thinking, oh no. So thank goodness one of the volunteers on the island was a nurse because I don't know what we would have done. So she sewed up her, her ankle and then gave her a tetanus shot and said we couldn't do any more snorkeling because, you know, the water was pretty dirty with all the debris. So we had to give up our 
<laughs> our volunteer snorkeling agenda. But when was the last time you ever heard those words together? Volunteer snorkeling. We were uh, partying in Atlanta, I think headed to the West Coast, uh, about 10 minutes before pushback. They called the cockpit and they said, there's a woman that doesn't want to go on the flight. There's a pastor next to her that's making her nervous. So she comes up the cockpit, she describes a guy, and he's kind of scruffy looking, ponytail, kind of a terrorist type looking guy. I said, well, what's the problem with him? Well, she had looked over. He was writing something on a piece of paper. She saw the word die, D-I-E. So she thought that he was either going to think suicide or murder or something. So luckily, oh, and also he didn't speak English very well. Turns out that he was writing in German, and the word D-I-E means the... So he was writing that several times that she saw it die, die, die all over this paper. I just flew with this captain, and he was saying, you know, I don't have any stories. Well, I must have thought of one because he emailed it to me two days later. Very nice of him. So I'm going to read it to you. He said he was flying from Fort Lauderdale to LaGuardia. Now, those flights are just famous for being very difficult on the flight attendants because the New Yorkers are, are just, they're famous for being cranky. They, they complain about everything. They're very demanding. They're cranky with each other. They yell. Very, it's a very difficult work environment. <laughs> New York, Florida, Florida, New York. So they're flying on this flight. And this is back in the day when we had playing cards. We had little plastic wings for the kids. And the New Yorkers, if we had it, they want it. They used to, we used to hear that they used to even sell the playing cards at like flea markets. But um, if we had it, they wanted it. So he said they were standing at the front of the plane saying goodbye to everybody in LaGuardia. And this woman walks up and hands the flight attendant a full barf bag. Ugh. And she's standing there holding it, not really wanting to touch it. It's like dangling from her fingers. And she's still saying goodbye, goodbye. And this other woman walks up, grabs the bag and says, I didn't get one of those and keeps walking very satisfied for her, with herself that she got the last one of those. <laughs> so the pilot's mortified. He wants to go get her. And the flight attendant puts her arm right out in front of his chest and says, don't you dare. <laughs> Okay, so you have a start? <laughs> I was on vacation in September for two weeks, and I was doing, I was having a hard time going to sleep. So every, mor every morning around 2 o'clock in the morning, I would get up and go downstairs, and I would go and read, and then go back upstairs. And, you know, I've been doing that for a few weeks. So I had my, my yearly exams and everything, so the doctor gave me Ambien. Yeah. <laughs> and she says, okay, go ahead and take half, and then... Um, each night and then come back on Friday. I said, okay, that'd be great. So I did. I At 8.30, I took my half of Ambien. I went to 8.30 at night. And I took my <laughs> took my Ambien and went to bed by 9.30. And I slept all the way through the night and it was wonderful. I woke up, I was refreshed, everything was great. 
Tuesday I did the same thing. Wednesday I took my other half. And on Thursday, my husband says, so what do you do when you get out of bed? <laughs> and I said, no, I've been sleeping all the way through now. It's been great. I've been getting my, my full eight hours of sleep. It, it's been wonderful. And, I, and he says, well, you know, you do get up. And I said, no, I don't. I, don't, I stay in bed. Well, so, well, I got up at 2 o'clock in the morning. He followed me down on Thursday night. And he followed me down. And to see what I was doing. My eyes were open. Honey, I was cooking. I was making a roast. I was making roast chicken. I was making spaghetti sauce. And I had been doing this ever since Monday. I thought my I thought my husband was making dinner. Oh my goodness. So I so I wouldn't have to do it the next day. I thought he was doing it because I was going to bed so early. So I would make all this this food. And I would sit down, have my dinner at 3 o'clock in the morning, eat. eat, put my dishes away, clean up the kitchen, and go back to sleep. I gained 12 pounds that week. Oh my gosh, I don't remember any of it. I don't remember a thing. So Friday, I had my regular appointment, so I went back to the doctor, and I said, I asked the doctor, so what is the side effects to, to Ambien? She says... Dry mouth, dry eyes, uh, you'll get a headache, and that, that's about it. And I said, that's it, that's all there is. And she says, well, there's just a, a half a percent of the people who take Ambien sleepwalk. People have been waking up in the middle of the night at a drive-thru. Thank goodness I was not one of those, but I was cooking full dinners that night and eating eating my meal so obviously I don't take that anymore it would have been better if I was cleaning my house because it would be yes it would be less painful to clean my house with not knowing it <laughs> I was in Peru and we were going to be hiking the Inca Trail and before I went I had read up like I always do and I had arranged this whole trip which I hardly ever go through like a travel agent but I had found this agency that this flight attendant has and he works for another airline and his wife is from Peru so he sets up trips there and he sets up the hike he has a lot of contacts there so I had been reading about these coca leaves you know, and coca tea. And apparently all the local people and the, the porters on the hike all chew these leaves and they drink the coca tea and it said it helps with the altitude. And since we were going to be hiking to 14,000 feet, anything to help with the altitude sounds good. But I was a little concerned because it's called coca leaves. I just wanted to make sure it didn't have anything to do with cocaine. So I asked the flight attendant who was setting up my trip and his wife's from Peru, you know, and he is also a flight attendant and we get drug tested. I said, is that the coca leaves, does that have anything to do with cocaine? You know, because we get drug tested. I don't want anything to do with it if it has any any negative drug connotations. And he said, oh, no, no, it has nothing to do with it. It's fine. Everybody there chews it. It has nothing to do with cocaine. So I felt pretty confident. And we're on our hike. Fabulous hike, by the way. Um, uh, you know, the Incan Trail to Machu Picchu. It's a four-day hike. So we're on the hike. And all the porters that we have with us are chewing these coca leaves. And they asked us if we wanted to purchase a bag of coca leaves for a dollar. And we were like, okay, you know, like when in Peru. <laughs> so we get our coca leaves. And they were explaining how you do it. You take the leaves, look like leaves from a tree. 
so there's the leaves in the bag, and then there's this black ball, like a black gummy ball. You take the leaves, you put them in your mouth, and then you take a little bit of this black ball, and then you put that in your mouth too, and then you start chewing it. Well, it was like, oh, like the worst thing you've ever tasted. And I was thinking, why on earth do they chew this horrible stuff? But then you just chew a little longer, and then, then it tastes a little better, and it starts tasting a little better. And then you start acting a little silly, and like part of your face feels a little numb. <laughs> I mean, your face feels a little numb, so much so that I was drooling this, like, because you're chewing it, it, and there's that black ball. It turns into like this black green liquid. It was like rolling down my face, but because my face was so numb, I couldn't feel it. <laughs> Very attractive. But now a friend, there were three of us on this hike, and one of my friends ended up getting an abscessed tooth, which is just horribly painful. I felt very sorry for her. I mean, we were hiking at 14,000 feet here. She has this abscessed tooth, and she didn't want to go to a, a, a dentist in a developing country, so she was in a lot of pain. And as soon as she got home, she went to her dentist, and she was asking her dentist about this coca leaves and the black ball because she was suspicious that the leaves weren't clean and they had bacteria on them and that had gotten into her tooth and that's what give it, had given her the abscessed tooth. That was her theory. So she's asking the dentist about that and he was saying he didn't think that it had given her the abscessed tooth, but that black ball was like pure cocaine. <laughs> Okay, so I still don't know. You know, the dentist is probably more knowledgeable than the flight attendant slash travel agent. But uh, to this day, I don't know. But um, it did make you feel silly. And when I got back from that trip, and I'm back working, uh, I kept telling people the story about the black ball and feeling silly. And wouldn't you know, I kept getting drug tested. <laughs> Uh, the drug testing program is supposed to be random, but I got a little suspicious when I got drug tested like five times. <laughs> it all came out clean, but I should learn to keep my big mouth shut. Woman Betty, who wears custom Jimmy shoes. She gets her hair on Thursdays and she dines I'm Lucy Ash, and this is Outlook on the BBC World Service. Coming later in the program. Betty, the flight attendant who's dreading the idea of people yakking on their mobiles at 30,000 feet. So getting enough sleep is always really important for us as flight attendants. Lots of times we have a very short layover and you have very little time. So you need to like basically get to your room, hurry up and sleep just so you have enough sleep for the next day. This poses a problem because it's very hard to sleep, you know, quickly when, you know, it's so important to hurry up and sleep. So there's flight attendants that would, um, they'll take melatonin, other things to try to help you get to sleep. And then they'll also take things like Tylenol PM, you know, an over-the-counter sleep aid. And what some people would do, I never did it because it always made me a little nervous, but they would take the Tylenol PM like in the van all, on the way to the airport hotel so that once they got their key and got to the room and got their clothes off, you know, it would kick in and they could go to sleep. <laughs> Well, this flight attendant was telling me this would, had always been her M.O. with the Tylenol PM, and it worked really well. So she had been to the doctor, and the doctor had given her Ambien, you know, a prescription sleep aid. And she decided she'd just do it the same way she used to do with her Tylenol PM. So she took her Ambien in the van on the way to the airport hotel. Bad idea. Bad. <laughs> 
<laughs> she's flying in charge, you know. <laughs> she's the in-flight coordinator, so she she's the one that's supposed to sign everybody in. You know, we, we get everybody's keys. I have a sign-up sheet for the airline employees. So she said she gets to the hotel, and all of a sudden, her legs are so heavy. She's like, like walking like, you know, <laughs> like um. Frankenstein to the the check-in desk and she's looking at the person and the 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 person behind the hotel desk is saying are you okay and she's like I don't know (laughs) you can't take don't take Ambien unless you are near your bed because it can be a huge problem You know how irritating it can be. You're trying to read your paper on the bus, but you can't block out the woman droning on about her sales figures or the loud man boasting about what he got up to last night. I'm annoyed by everyone's mobile phones, except my own, of course. My old ringtone drove colleagues mad, a piercing whistle followed by a posh voice shouting, Taxi? Still, there's always been one place where you can escape from all the beeps, tones, and inane conversations. The airplane. But now, even that peaceful haven is under threat, at least on European routes. New rules have just come in to allow people to use their phones while flying. Apparently, the calls won't interfere with the navigation system and are perfectly safe. So what do seasoned flyers make of these plans? Betty is an American flight attendant who spends 1,200 hours a year in the sky and writes a blog about her adventures. I asked her if she welcomes the move. I think it is an absolutely terrible idea. I can't imagine 200 people talking at the same time on the airplane. People are already on edge. They're already crammed in there. It's uncomfortable. You're in such close proximity with each other. I can't imagine people talking all hours of the day. What's the worst case scenario you can imagine? Well, I already have people, passengers, fighting with one another. Little tiny things on the airplane just set them off, whether or not the person in front of them has their seat back too far, if there's a baby crying, there's somebody kicking the back of their seat, a small child. So if you're going to have somebody talking, you know, some people talk very loud on their cell phones, I think another person is going to get so angry with them and then they're going to start fighting with each other. You actually asked people what they thought on a flight from Maui to L.A. Let's hear what they had to say. Yes, the the baby just got to sleep and from two rows up. Yes, I can see it now. If you've ever been in an elevator when someone uses their telephone, then you know what it'll be like in the airplane. So I suggest that they give everyone a helmet that wants to use a phone. And and actually, uh, they could do a sealable helmet. The airlines could sell them and maybe make some money so that they can stay in business. Like an astronaut's helmet? Yeah, an astronaut's helmet. I think that's a great idea. And then I don't have to listen to all the stuff that you have to say to your cat or whomever you talk to. When our customers are on the ground, they seem to feel that they're the only ones in the airport, anywhere, the only ones in the bus. They're very, very loud, and they won't care. They'll just keep talking. They won't care. It's, it's all about them. I think it's just a can of worms. Well, the only thing that comes to mind is you'd think people would want to have a little break from working on their brain tumor. I'm on a plane right now from Maui to Los Angeles, and it's an all-night flight, and I am now going to walk 
all the way through the airplane from first class all the way to the very back of coach and I want you to hear how quiet it is. That was beautifully quiet, Betty. How many people were actually on that plane? Well, there were 36 people in first class and 240 people in coach. And were most of them asleep? Almost everyone was asleep. And I think they are only asleep because it's quiet. How do you think mobile phones on planes would affect your job? Would it mean that you were a lot busier? At least in the States, we're minimum staffed, which means that we have one flight attendant per 50 passengers. So we're already cut so thin when there's a medical emergency comes up. Any type of situation comes up, there's just not as many of us to deal with it. So we don't have time to play kindergarten cop with people who are aggravated because other people are talking too loud on their cell phones. What's the absolute worst situation you've had to deal with in terms of people losing their rag midair? I have had on my flight where two grown men literally started swinging at each other because one wanted the window shade up and the other one wanted the window shade down. And that's such a small thing, so I think that cellular phones would just make everything so much worse. That was a harassed-sounding U.S. flight attendant, Betty. If you want more information about the stories we cover or to listen to programs you've missed, just go to our website at bbcworldservice.com. Well, that's about it for this episode of Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase. I hope you'll join me again next time so we can travel the world together. Thanks. Bye.